All right. Hey, my friends, welcome to this episode of Real Live Talk. I'm so excited that you guys are here to check out this conversation. I'm so excited to have my guest with me today, uh, Dr. Mike Lacona. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about uh, Dr. Mike in just a moment, but thank you guys so much for taking the time to check out this episode. Pray that the content blesses you, challenges you, makes you think. If it does, if you consider subscribing, uh, if you're listening to this on one of the podcast platforms or leaving a review, that would be amazing. If you're watching this live, you can be notified of all future live events by uh, liking or following the Facebook page at DK Lamastra. And uh, just thank you guys so much for any support there. Appreciate you guys again. Uh, Dr. Mike Lacona is, is Associate Professor of Theology at Houston Baptist University. He holds a PhD in New Testament from the University of Pretoria. He's the founder and president of Risen Jesus, which is a ministry with a vision to see 100,000 Christians equal. One, excuse me, 100,000 Christians equipped to defend their faith using the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. He's also author, co-author, or editor of several books, including The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus and The Resurrection of Jesus, A New Historiographical Approach. And uh, that book is no joke. It is over 700 pages. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> just a very extensive study on the subject of the resurrection of Jesus. So, uh, Dr. Mike, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. It's really an honor to uh, spend some time with you. And uh, great to meet you, by the way. <laughs> oh, well, my pleasure, Duke. And um, hey, good uh, good uh, job on pronouncing historiographical. A, a lot of YouTubers have trouble with that. <laughs> I was about 75% sure. Um, and uh, do you prefer Mike or Michael? Mike's fine. Mike's good. All right. Uh, well, can, can we just start there real quick? I know it's not um, necessarily the the topic for today, but I think that it's it, that it will maybe help us to understand the nature of the way that we approach this subject. Would you actually talk a little bit about what you mean by uh, historiography and the difference between historiography as opposed to history? Well, I, that would come from uh, two Greek words, uh, historeo, or to inquire uh, about something, and then graphe, meaning uh, writing, okay? So historiography would mean um, historical literature. Uh, that, mm -hmm. That's there for the inquiry. So yeah, that's what historiographical would mean. Okay. And so is there any different, because um, in, in reading the way that you were talking about it, you were talking about kind of being infused with some philosophy and is that a, or am I, am I mixing up terms here? <laughs> you know, anyone who's doing anything in the disciplines, of course, is, is going to be doing philosophy to an extent, right? Because mm. we make certain philosophical assumptions and even in history, you're going to make certain philosophical assumptions um, such as assuming that the external uh, art senses provide a relatively accurate uh, perception of the external world. And you're going to assume that the external world is real, that solipsism isn't correct, that more than just one mind exists. Um, you know, we're going to make certain uh, assumptions that uh, about truth. Um mm. And we're going to assume in history that a past existed um, and that we can know it to some kind of, of an extent. You know, historians are going to disagree. Postmodernist historians are going to limit uh, their, they're going to think that um, our ability to understand and know the past is going to be far more limited than realist historians. And even realist historians are going to vary on the degree to which we can know the past. So, mm. um, yeah. So uh, there are those who historians who are philosophers of history, and all they do is talk about the philosophy of history. They're not doing a whole lot of work in terms of, you know, whether Caesar actually crossed the Rubicon, whether Jesus actually performed miracles, mm. um, whether it was the Nazis or the communists who burned down um, the, uh, the the German would be a, the equivalent of our Capitol building, I, I suppose, the Reichstag in 1933. So they may not look so much into that kind of stuff. They are doing more theoretical um, research. Okay. You know, how do we know yeah. the past? What kind of criteria? What are these criteria and uh, things like that? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing. Well, let me um, go ahead and explain what what we're really focusing here on in this conversation today. Uh, the purpose of this conversation is going to be really focused on the resurrection of Jesus, and we're going to talk through some evidences for the resurrection of Jesus. And so just before we jump into that, would you uh, briefly touch on, before we get to the resurrection, briefly touch on the crucifixion and just some of the evidence that's available to support the fact that Jesus actually was crucified and that he died according to the way that the scriptures lay out to us? Sure. Well, first, we do have um, non-Christian sources who mention Jesus's execution by the Romans. Uh, for example, Josephus in his Antiquities of the Jews, book 18, section 63, mentions how it, it was at the instigation of the Jewish leadership that the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, crucified Jesus. Um, and then you have uh, Tacitus, the great Roman historian, and in his mm -hmm. Annals of Rome, book 15, section 44, he mentions Jesus's execution uh, having the most extreme penalty, which would have been crucifixion. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, but, but Jesus's execution by the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. You have uh, uh, Lucian of Samosata, a Greek satirist in the, the middle, around the middle of the second century, maybe just a little bit later. Um, he mentions Jesus's crucifixion in Palestine. Uh, you have Marabar Serapion, who uh, we're not sure when he wrote, probably sometime in the latter part of the first century or any time during the second century. And he was a prisoner, probably facing execution. And mm. he's, he's writing... Um, and, uh, he's, he's talking about, um, how, um, the Jews had Jesus put to death. So, um, yeah, so you've got non-Christian sources doing it, but historians, even atheist and agnostic and Jewish historians don't rely primarily on these extra biblical non-Christian sources. They rely primarily on the biblical sources, believe it or not. And, and, and the reason being is because even though they, they don't believe a lot of what the Bible reports, uh, the New Testament literature is indisputably, um, mm. it's, at, you know, at the majority, if not all of it, is first century literature written by Christians. And they may not believe the, the stuff like the miracles, the, the virgin birth, the resurrection of Jesus, but sure. they still use it as historical literature to learn certain things. So it's, it's kind of like me, you know, I, I, I'm not a Muslim. I don't believe that the Quran is divinely inspired or that is the word of God in any sense. Yet I can still go to the Quran as a student of history and I can read things like in one of the surahs, it, um, uh, Allah asked Jesus, did you tell your followers that you, Mary and, and I are all gods? And Jesus mm. says, Allah, you know, I, I never said such a thing. Um, I've only pointed people and told them to follow you. And um, so uh, I don't believe that Jesus and, and God ever had that conversation. But what it does tell me as a student of history is that, <clears throat> excuse me, sometime in the seventh, early 7th century, there were Muslims who were interacting with perhaps Catholic Christians. Um, mm. And, and the Muslims were misunderstanding the high view of Mary with saying that she's God. And they were answering the Catholic view about the deity of Jesus and the high view of Mary. So um, I can still learn that or like in another server, when it talks about ambushing the infidels, the disbelievers and killing them. Um, I don't believe God ever commanded that, but it does tell me that Muslims were using that in the uh, in the seventh century to justify attacking right, and killing right. non-believers. Right. And so you'll have atheist and agnostic and Jewish scholars, atheist agnostics like um, Bart Ehrman, who will come to the Gospels and and the New Testament literature and say there are some things about Jesus that we can learn from this that are indisputable. And of course, one of those things would be. Jesus's death by crucifixion on the orders of Pontius Pilate. So uh, mm. not only is it attested in non-Christian literature, but we also find it in early literature, like, like Paul's letters, like the Gospel of Mark. Um, Paul's 
Paul probably was in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus's crucifixion. Whether he witnessed Jesus's crucifixion or heard Jesus teach, we don't know. Some people mm. say no, but there's no evidence that he didn't. There's no evidence that he did. I would think if if the Gospels are correct and Jesus was call, um, you know, all the commotion about Jesus uh, during the Passover and then his trial by the Sanhedrin and then his crucifixion, um, that would not have been a small matter. And if Paul was in Jerusalem at that time, and it was Passover, so he probably was, there's a good chance he was aware of what was going on and maybe mm. even saw Jesus's crucifixion. But we don't know, and so you can't say one way or or the other. But he would have been early. He uh, it, It's indisputable that he knew Jesus's disciples and um, mm. what was you know, had met with Peter and James several times and, um, and they would have known about it. They were eyewitnesses and, um, he's getting a lot of information from them as well. So there's other things that we could do. There's so much sure. evidence for Jesus's death by crucifixion, but um, sure. that's one of the indisputable facts about Jesus. Okay. So that's not something that's that's very much across the board. It's it's very much undisputed, is what you're saying. Is the just the fact that he died the way the Bible says that he died? That that's correct. I mean, of course, you're always going to have a, a few out there Some outliers. Yeah, yeah. Um, just like you have a few historians who will deny that the Holocaust ever took place, right? Um, mm. But so you're never going to have a 100. But you got pretty close to it when it comes to Jesus's death by crucifixion. Yeah. Um, Mike, real quick, just because I'm curious, how did you get into this in the first place? Where did this passion to really, uh, you've you've devoted so much of your life and of your study to this topic in particular on the resurrection of Jesus. Um, where did this desire to really dig as deep as you have into this come from? I'd say there were, it was a couple of steps involved, a few steps involved. So the first step was in the fall of 1985, and I was uh, completing a, a, a Master of Arts degree in New Testament studies, mm. and I was taking my final course, um, and um, I started to experience doubts about whether Christianity was true. And um, one of my roommates who was doing a master's degree in Christian apologetics suggested that I go see one of his professors, Gary Habermas who's a, a philosophy professor, and um, he had specialized in the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And so I went to him, talked to him, and he shared some of the evidence with me and settled my doubts at that point. Um, mm. Then it was later on, um, after grad school, I'm out and I'm sharing my faith with others, and I'm getting all kinds of pushback from skeptics. And it's like, well, I don't know how to answer this stuff. And there was no, I mean, we're talking about the 1980s, right? The late 1980s. And so there's no email then. So I called Gary Habermas and uh, he was so kind to be patient with me and spend time and provide answers and refer me to resources. Mm. And um, that helped me. And um, then later on, um, I was given a lecture. I think this is 1997. I was given a lecture on the resurrection of Jesus. And I could just see the people in my church who were <laughs> in my Sunday school class at that time. They were bored. I wasn't connecting with them. And I thought, well, how can I make this a little more interesting? And my wife su suggested I just write a script to a story, a fictitious story. And so I started that day. And um, um, like a year later, I came out with a self-published book in 1998 called Cross-Examine, which is very mm. similar to the movie that came out, you know, probably a decade later, God is Not Dead. God, uh, mm -hmm. one or two decades later, God is not dead. Um, and, um, but writing that when I was writing that, I was, I was, I really just could imagine myself in this courtroom situation and trying to come up with all these different arguments against the resurrection and to live them. I mean, to really experience, uh, empathize and get into the, the worldview of the person given them. Wow. And that, caused me doubts. And so I'm on the phone with Gary yeah. Habermas again, you know, and, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, he's helping me work through these things. And then finally, um, I decided that I wanted to uh, do my doctoral research on it, uh, just to come up for another, another angle in Christian apologetics to show the resurrection occurred. But shortly after I got into it, I was, you know, I'm reading lots of stuff more than a more than a hundred journal articles, 
more than uh, a dozen books on on the philosophy of history and historical method written by philosophers of history and historians who operate mm -hmm. outside the community of biblical scholars. Right. And they were saying there's no such thing as a neutral or unbiased historian. Everybody has, um, uh, you could say, an ax to grind or what uh, um, a desired outcome. And so it is those biases, that worldview, that horizon of the historian that jeopardizes the integrity of their investigation. And I realized mm. that includes me. And um, being the second guesser that I have been over the years, I wanted to, to approach this as sincerely, authentically, honestly as possible with the hopes that it would, um, um, you know, once and for all do away with any doubts that I had. Yeah. Um, and um, so, you know, I just tried to cross every T and dot every I. And that's why my dissertation ended up being somewhere between three to four times the size, the length of an <laughs> average doctoral dissertation. Um, so that's that's how I got involved uh, with it. That's how I got interested in it. And, um, you know, during that time when I'm doing my research, I'm trying to be as honest as possible. And I wanted to engage in public debates with some of the leading skeptics out there to push back hear their pushback on the things I were presenting, and then I could assess things. So I didn't want to take on any lightweights. So I went after some of the biggest people out there, you know, and tried to engage in public debates with them and, and interact with their, their arguments. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's how I got involved. Yeah. And I encourage people to check out those debates. Um, and I, and I know you've got some of those available on your uh, website, risenjesus.com. And other than that, I'm, I'm sure YouTube is YouTube, channel, YouTube, YouTube would be a good channel. place to. Uh... Our YouTube channel is Mike Lacona official. So youtube.com okay. forward slash Mike Lacona official. Yeah, those debates are fantastic. I love uh, I, I've uh, I've been able to check out a, a, a few of those. And uh, yeah, it's it's super it's super fascinating. And it's it's actually good. I think at least for, for somebody like me, it, it helps me to kind of hear both sides. It helps me to hear the the argument for it helps me to hear the argument against. And I think that from an apologetic standpoint and really just from the standpoint of wanting to be able to as a believer to better defend your faith or to better be able to share your faith and the reasons why you believe what you believe. I think that hearing both sides is really, really helpful because then you're kind of already prepared in your mind for some of the things that, that people say. I think that that's kind of what happens to a lot of people that, you know, like me, I grew up in a, in a Christian home. I was a, a Christian for as long as I could remember, <laughs> you know, grew up in the church and all of that. And there's kind of this Christian bubble sort of a thing that that you live in if you grow up that way and then when you kind of get into your college years and stuff like that and you start to hear different kinds of things and you start to learn philosophy and and it, it's interesting because some of the you know when you go to um, a lot of the universities and college campuses where you know you get into ph philosophy type classes and things like that where a lot of times they are the intention is to if you believe in Jesus or you believe that the Bible is real or you are a Christian, like the, the intent a lot of times is to kind of get you to to doubt and to wrestle with those beliefs and things like that, or even to uh, give up those beliefs by the time you come you come through it, you know. And so it's uh, it's it's really imperative, right, that as believers that we have at least some level of understanding of why we believe what we believe. And in particular, this conversation on the resurrection of Jesus, it is so important because it is it is so central to our faith and to what we believe that even as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, if there is no resurrection, then we we're in futility. We're the most pitiable of all men. We're all going to hell. We're all in our sins. Like if there is no resurrection, then, you know, what we're doing has it doesn't mean anything essentially and so uh yeah what, what would you just say on 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 that and then we'll jump into some specific things as far as um why why is understanding the resurrection of jesus and and just knowing what some of the evidences are and things like that why why do you think that it's so 
valid and so important for the just the average believer to understand. And when I say average believer, I don't mean that in a condescending way. I just mean right. even if you're not in ministry or somebody who's going to give a doctoral dissertation on this or something like that, why is it important for just the every believer, let's just say, to uh, have a base understanding of the resurrection in, in a way that we can actually defend and stand up for what we believe? Well, Duke, I, th I think the reasons you articulated, I, I think you're right on with those. And you mentioned how students go off to school and their professors, you know, try to uh, motivate them to give up their faith by the end of the class. And, you know, I've spoken on more than a hundred university campuses mm. and even in the Bible belt of the U S I've had students tell me that they've had professors who on the first day of class say, how many of you are, you know, Christians. And by the end of the semester, I, uh, my objective is you'll no longer be a Christian. Um, it, it happens here in Georgia at uh, the University uh, of Georgia in Athens. It, uh, they've told me that there's a professor there who has done it. Uh, I've had a couple of students say that they had that professor. Um, I had a graduate student uh, years ago who told me that when he was at U UNC Chapel Hill, that Bart Ehrman said something very similar on the first day of class, that um, by the end of the semester, um, he, he, his objective was for the Christians to doubt everything they presently mm, believe. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. Um, I had a, a seven hour debate with Bart Ehrman. He's become a friend. Um, we've had seven debates now. And um, I had a mm. seven hour debate with him uh, back in April. And on the following Wednesday, we had it on a Saturday. I think it was April the 9th. And on the following Wednesday, I was uh, speaking at a Christian school here in the Atlanta area. And the, um, the supervisor of that school, there were two campuses. It's like a, a kindergarten through 12th grade and um, between the two campuses. And the guy was the, I, I don't, he's not called a supervisor, but he's like the principal over the two principals, you know, whatever that would be, the superintendent or whatever. Um, he asked me how it went. Uh, he didn't see it. I asked him if he saw it and he said, no. Uh, I mean, it was the first thing he said when I came in the door that Wednesday morning. And he said, Hey, I heard you had a lengthy debate with Thurman on Saturday. I said, yeah. I, did you see it? He said, no. He said, you know, I <laughs> teach at a, a prep school up in the Raleigh Durham area. And, you know, I, I had a student who came back after uh, studying at UNC Chapel Hill. And he told me that he had had Bart Ehrman as a professor. And on the first day of class, Ehrman said, you know, so I, I've had wow. uh, um, a student plus a teacher of a former student uh, of his say the same thing. So, um, again, this is happening all over the country, but it, it is important because you, know, you do have professors who are trying to uh, lure Christians away from their faith. Plus, let's face it, we live in a very secular post-Christian culture that is becoming increasingly hostile toward the Christian worldview. Um, you know, it is not, you know, we've gone from being a, a, a you know, the default position to right. a, a thing where Christianity was, it was regarded as nothing more than a harmless delusion. Now we're a harmful delusion mm. in the eyes of others. And it shouldn't surprise us because Jesus said in John 7, that people hated him because he exposes their evil deeds. And he said uh, elsewhere that uh, don't we shouldn't be surprised that they hate us because they hated him first. That we right. are out of this world. He chose us out of this world. And so we can expect that kind of hatred toward us because we stand against the agenda of, of, of the world. So um, why learn something about the resurrection? It's important because it tells us Christianity is true. And when you have such strong, strong influence, not only in our educational institutions, but also in a corporate environment and in all the media out there, yeah, the major yeah. media, um, that's huge. So Christians need to be fellowshipping on a regular basis Come um, on. and they need to have their own personal walk with the Lord and they need to be learning evidence for Christianity being true in order to maintain their faith.
Yeah. And uh, just one more peripheral question before we, <laughs> I promise we're going to jump into actual uh, evidence here. But um, I'm just thinking as you're talking, I feel like this could, this could really add some value. Um, what would you say to a believer who is sincere in their faith and wanting to follow the Lord and, and uh, have a relationship with God, but maybe they are struggling with some kind of doubts in their mind or something like that. I think a lot of times we can feel ashamed because of that, especially if we've been following Christ for a long time, uh, especially if we're in ministry or something like that. And then those doubts, you know, come and, and I feel like that could be something that could be shameful to the point that we just keep that inside and don't want to share that or articulate that with anybody. And and I know that there's people out there for sure um, that, uh, again, you you know, you get to you even if you grew up with it, probably everybody at some point gets to a certain point in their life, even if they think because I mean, I remember thinking this growing up like, oh, I'm never going to doubt my faith. No one's ever going to shake me. No one's ever going to make me. And then I would find myself years later at a point like, well, how do I know that this is really true or how can I be sure of this? You know, and I can point to experiences and different things in my life that I've had. And, and of course, faith, that faith is a real element to this, right? Where there, there is an aspect of faith where we can talk about evidence all day long, but at the end of the day, it still requires faith. Um, but anyway, just what would you say to somebody? Cause I'm sure you encounter people on a regular basis who are struggling with some aspect of their faith or what they believe and uh, what's one just, just what's something that you uh, like to share to encourage people that might be struggling with something like that? Well, I'd say they can go to my website, risenjesus.com. I have an article on there. I wrote, uh, I think it's titled, I'm a Doubting Thomas. And I talk about <laughs> doubt there. They can also go to our YouTube channel. So just go to YouTube, type in my name, Mike Lacona. You'll see my YouTube channel come up. It's got a few hundred videos. And then just go up to the search uh, little uh, magnifying glass on my channel and then just type in the word doubt and you'll see a number of videos come up uh, that I've done. The, um, the most popular one is one that my wife and I did together on doubt when worship leaders began, you know, coming uh, out and, and leaving uh, the church, leaving their faith. We did a, I think it's a 38 minute video on doubt. Um, I guess in a synopsis, I'd say number one, doubting is normal. So you mm. had people in the Bible like Abraham who doubted God. Um, you have John the Baptist who doubted. And, um, and Jesus spoke very mm. highly of John the Baptist while he was doubting. Yeah. And, um, True. So, so, you know, John the Baptist had a lot to go on in terms of knowing Jesus was who he claimed to be. And yet when he found himself in prison in very difficult circumstances, he began having emotional doubts like, God, I feel abandoned by you. Uh, you know, what's the deal here? And he began doubting and, uh, but Jesus still complimented him. He encouraged him. He provided evidence for him. So doubting is normal. In fact, even atheists doubt, uh, CS Lewis said that when he was an atheist, there were times of doubt. And as a Christian, he still had times of doubt. Anthony mm. flew is one of the most, uh, perhaps the most influential philosophical atheist of the latter part of the 20th century. And he told Gary Habermas, he doubted his atheism every day. Um, wow. That was before he gave up atheism and believed that there's some sort of a, a God who exists. And, um, and then, uh, so doubting is normal. Um, I would say that um, there is good evidence for the truth of Christianity, number two. Uh, number three, that uh, absolute certainty is an unrealistic uh, expectation. Uh, we just really can't have 100% certainty about anything. And if you do, you may not be justified in having it. Some people are 100% certain they're marrying the right person and four years later, they're divorced. Wow. Um, so, um, you know, uh, we, ha we have to admit that um, it, uh, we're, you know, it, it's unrealistic to think we're going to be 100% certain. And, yeah. um, and then finally, I'd say that fa faith is not, necessarily the absence of doubt it is acting in the presence of doubt acting as though it's true even in the presence of doubt lord i believe but help my unbelief mm. um that kind of thing so um those are a few things uh, points i'd make and these are in an article and um in the video 
Yeah, no, that's really good. That's really helpful. I appreciate you you sharing that. All right, so let's uh, let's jump into in, into it. So, um, what for for you when you're going to talk to somebody? And, and let's just say, just to keep this real simple, let's say you're going to have. I'm not talking about some like like a an official debate or anything, but you're on the street and you engage in conversation with somebody who, let's just say, is a non-believer. And uh, they start asking you questions about how can you believe the Bible's real or specifically how can you believe that Jesus really rose from the dead? Um, what is sort of your methodology or your approach or something that you would recommend? Because, again, you, you've been doing this for a number of years, so maybe you, you have a different way um, than what you would recommend. If you do, you can share, um, you know, uh, either one of those. But, uh, yeah, either what is your approach or how do you recommend that? a believer kind of engage in those conversations and some things to focus on so that we're not getting so into the weeds with stuff that we don't understand or that we, you know, really could have a hard time proving or something like that. But yeah, like, what do you think is just a good sort of run of the mill approach that every believer can use to sort of answer some of those questions that come up? You know, Duke, I have a real simple way of doing it. I mean, and there are it just depends who I'm talking to. You know, I might do it one way with one person, one way, another person, but a real simple way that I'll teach others is to, to do what's called a logic tree. And so I'll start off and, and say, you know, there is one thing, despite disagreements on so many different issues, um, New Testament scholars, whether they're atheist, agnostic, Jewish, liberal, progressive, moderate, uh, conservative Christian, they all agree that shortly after Jesus's death, his disciples had experiences, I'm sorry, his disciples claimed that Jesus mm. rose from the dead and appeared to them. It's not even to say that they really believed it or anything happened, but we know they were claiming it. And then I'll provide some evidence for that. Um, and, um, and then the person will say, yeah, but, uh, you know, that could have been a hallucination. They could have been lying, anything. Yeah, you're right. I'm not saying anything else other than they were just claiming it at this point. So now let's just look at two options. Um, either they saw him as they claimed, or they did not. Can you mm. think of another option? <laughs> no. Okay. So, um, all right, let's just say they claimed that they saw the risen Jesus, but they did not. Either they thought that he, they saw him or they did not think that they saw him. Right. Okay. Um, no other option there. So let's just say they, um, they really thought that they saw him. Well, we got couple options here, hallucinations, which seems reasonable, plausible, since they would have been grief stricken. But then I'll go mm. on to show how that's an implausible explanation. It doesn't work. Another option it, that they really believed it um, is that Jesus had an identical twin who appeared to them <laughs> afterward, and they thought it was Jesus. And I show that's not a reasonable option. And I say, okay, well, now we can rule out that side. And so we can go on to another leg of this logic tree mm -hmm. or branch, I should say. So uh, Jesus' disciples claimed he rose and appeared to them. He did not, and they knew he didn't. So that would mean either they were lying, and I can show where that's implausible, or mm -hmm. uh, they knew he didn't because they were using it as a metaphor for something else, like, well, his teachings still live on today, something like that. And I can show how that's not a reasonable option. It doesn't work. Right. So now we rule that out. Now you have to go over to the other branch of this logic tree. They claim Jesus rose and appeared to them, and he did appear to them. Um, and so now you have the option. Well, he um, he uh, uh, never died. Okay. So um, okay. He, he never died. So, and, and you show how that didn't happen. And so at the end, you're only really left with, with one option. And that is that Jesus disciples claimed he rose and appeared to them. He appeared to them and he died and mm. rose and appeared to them. It's the only thing that works. So it's a pretty simple logic tree and it's, uh, it's easy to teach to others and they can turn around and use it as well. What do you say on the hallucination point? So they they yeah so they believed that they were seeing jesus and they weren't lying about it but they were just hallucinating at you know seeing jesus after his after his death uh but it was a, a hallucination thing so 
there's there's a lot of you know theories that I hear today about how psychedelic drugs and things like that were like a big part of 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 this and why we have some of the cra- you know the the quote unquote crazy stories that we have in the Bible and these different things that people wrote about that they were you know birthed out of drug abuse like drug use or something like that so um, a a reason they called jesus the most high god (laughs) most high (laughs) (laughs) that was a good one uh yeah so just on on the hallucination one uh what's something that you say when somebody if somebody brings that up or believes that or whatever you know uh gary habermas he's the foremost authority on the topic of the evidence for the resurrection of jesus and um he says that the hallucination hypothesis has been the most popular hypothesis, alternative hypothesis offered by skeptics during the last century. Uh, However, it is one of the most easily refuted ones. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, uh, first I'd say, let's understand a little bit. Let's gain a little understanding about hallucinations. Hallucinations. What are they? Well, they are false sensory perceptions. You believe uh, that you are perceiving something through your natural senses and that something is not actually there. So it could be through seeing or hearing or smelling or tasting or having the sense of motion or having the sense of touch. Those are the, the, the main types of hallucinations. Um, researchers over the past century have found that hallucinations typically occur in a single mode. So you might see something, but you don't hear it. You might hear mm. it, but you don't see it. Um, it's only people who are high, um, or who are schizophrenics who experience hallucinations in multiple modes, but typically it's in a single mode. Um, the group most likely to experience a hallucination are senior adults bereaving the loss of a loved one. And about 50% of them experience a hallucination of their loved one within say six months of the person's death. Um, Mm -hmm. but, um, only 7% of those adults bereaving the loss of a loved one experience a visual hallucination. So now you look at, uh, oh, another thing. Um, Because hallucinations are going on in the mind of an individual, they have no external reality. So in that sense, they're they're like dreams. And just as I couldn't wake up my wife in the middle of the night and say, honey, I'm having a dream. I'm in Hawaii. Go back (laughs) to sleep. Join me in my dream. Let's have a Yeah. Um, A person can't do that with a hallucination either. So with that in mind, um, you have the early reports, the earliest reports we have, um, 1 Corinthians 15 uh, verses 3 through 8, you have um, not 7% of Jesus' disciples experiencing visual hallucinations, and visual because it says he appeared to them, not 7%, but an unthinkable, implausible 100%. Yeah. implausible in terms of it being a hallucination. Second, you've got three group appearances there to the 12. He appeared to the 12, to more than 500, to all the apostles. So you have, you know, group appearances. Again, you can have group del- uh, delusions, which are entirely different from hallucinations. You can have group illusions, again, entirely different from hallucinations. Um, but you can't have a group hallucination. And yet you've got three group appearances that are mentioned in the earliest report of Jesus's mm. resurrection. And you have them also mentioned in other reports. And then you've got the problem of Paul. Paul wasn't grieving over Jesus' death. He was glad right. Jesus was dead. He believed Jesus was a failed Messiah and a false prophet. So Jesus would have been the last person in the universe that Paul would have expected to see or wanted to see. The hallucination hypothesis fails miserably. Mm. And that's a big deal right there, what you just said about Paul um, and the fact of of him being somebody who had, uh, as you said, he was persecuting the church and uh, delivering Christians up to to be tortured and killed and punished and, and all of that. And he has this experience, which is, you know, really described in detail. Um, where he's, you know, knocked off his horse and he's, his, his, uh, he loses his eyesight for, for a few days. And he has this, this vision of Jesus, where, as you said, as you mentioned, like that would be something very specifically that somebody could easily say like, oh, well, that was just a hallucination that he decided to write about later on or tell people about or whatever. Like, clearly that's a hallucination. But as you just said, that's a really important piece of the puzzle because 
Um, he's not somebody who wanted to see Jesus. That was a really horrifying experience for him <laughs> to experience Jesus the way that he experienced Jesus. And then his life takes that dramatic shift where he immediately changes course. And now he's proclaiming the gospel and becomes the the person who's written, you know, about half of the New Testament. And um, so that's a really, uh, really compelling uh, piece of I think evidence right there. What what do you think, in your opinion, just as far as the evidence for the resurrection goes, um, what to you is the most compelling? Um, well, or, yeah, we'll go with that. That have to be Paul. Okay. Um, and, and the reason being is because uh, although I'm inclined to believe the traditional authorship of the Gospels, um, especially Mark and Luke, um, but also John, and then to a lesser extent, Matthew, but I do think that Matthew was involved in the composition of, of the gospel attributed to him. Um, but even if I'm wrong with one or even all of those, um, there are seven letters in the New Testament that are indisputably yeah. written by Paul. And in several of those letters, uh, Galatians, 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about having met with Peter, the lead apostle, and James, the brother of Jesus. And he mm. mentions meeting with John, the son of, uh, probably John, the son of Zebedee. So, I mean, you've got two of Jesus' three closest disciples, plus you got his, one of his brothers that he met with and knew. Um, and he had been before them, according to Galatians 2, and ran the gospel message past them that he had been preaching. And he said they certified that he was on message with what they were preaching with a gospel message doesn't mean they agreed on everything, but it, at uh, every doctrine, but on the gospel right. message, yes, they were in full agreement. Um, and we have, you know, decent evidence from outside of the new Testament that Paul was preaching the same message as the Jerusalem apostles. So if Paul is preaching the bodily resurrection of Jesus, which he does, then that means that Jesus disciples were preaching the bodily resurrection of Jesus. So through Paul, we can get back pretty securely um, to Jesus's apostles and what they were proclaiming in terms of the gospel message. Hmm. So that's it's pretty cool. And Paul is perhaps our earliest writer in the New Testament. There are a few other candidates like uh, maybe James, the letter of James, maybe, um, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe Hebrews. It's possible. We just don't know. But Paul is certainly early perhaps before any of the Gospels. Um, mm. So he's an excellent source. And the fact is, he was a non-believer. Right. <laughs> hostile to the church. When he had the experience, he interpreted as the risen Jesus appearing to him, and he it transformed his life. So um, mm -hmm. it's not like one of his already believing disciples now being convinced that he rose. <laughs> you know, it, it's uh, It's crazy. You know, the, the, mm. the U.S. is extremely polarized in its politics right now. But can, can, can you imagine um, Donald Trump saying uh, to Nancy Pelosi that he was wrong all along and he becomes he, he joins Pelosi's reelection committee, you know, to to to, to run uh, or Pelosi joining the Trump train either way. Yeah. I mean, such yeah. would be such a radical change of mind. It's nothing compared to what what uh, Paul did, mm -hmm. and going from persecutor to persecuted. Wow, yeah, that's so good. It, one of the one of the more common, I think, um, arguments or things that people could very easily say is something that you alluded to earlier with the uh, apostles, so the disciples that were following Jesus, and then Jesus dies. And then they want to keep the story going, right? So they just start writing these books and they invent these stories and they make up this whole thing about Jesus coming back from the dead. And it just becomes this thing that they just want to perpetuate the story. So essentially, they're just lying about the resurrection. Um, what's, a, what's a good way to refute that? One word, Paul. <laughs> All roads lead to Paul. It's like, well, he wouldn't have been on that, right? Again, he believed sure, that sure. Uh, the Christian sect was a cult and he was out to destroy it, not promote it. So, I mean, that's a major problem there. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, and another thing, then you do have some external non-biblical or, or non-Christian sources that do mention 
the crucifixion of Jesus. And Tacitus goes on to say some things that are entirely consistent. Mm -hmm. uh, he doesn't mention a resurrection, but it's entirely consistent of it. He says that when Pilate crucified Jesus, that uh, Christianity was checked for the moment. And then it broke out in Judea where it started and then spread throughout the entire world, even to Rome itself. So wow. uh, it seems to be following, you know, the resurrection and the Great Commission. Now, that's not to say that that's proof of the resurrection or that Tacitus even mentioned sure. the resurrection, but it's certainly compatible with it. Sure. Um, and then really, the, these guys are just going to write and go out and preach. And it's like, hey, we know this is a false story, but go ahead. You can imprison us, beat us, torture us, mm -hmm. kill us in brutal ways. Um, we still like our story and we're sticking. Yeah. To yeah. Yeah. And and even on that, like if, if they were going to be if they were going to have that much of a lack of integrity, right, to be inventing stories just to keep something going and deceive people, then the way that they wrote about it would probably have been vastly different. Like considering the fact that, you know, women were the first one to witness the resurrection and things of that nature that at that time would have been very it, it would have um, lent less credibility um, in, in the day that they wrote it in. And it would have been, you know, somewhat almost embarrassing um, in some ways, like some of the some of the ways that they told the story so it's like there were things about the story that if they were making it up that it cl that clearly details would have been different w would you would you agree with that and and then um yeah and then as you said it's like why am i gonna go and risk and give my life i'm gonna lay down my life <laughs> for, for something, something that i've made false. up yeah. yeah yeah that's really that's really kind of an absurd idea but again, um, if one Paul, person did that, you could say, eh, they're a crazy person. But <laughs> but when you look through the line of of all the apostles of Jesus going through that and essentially becoming martyrs for their faith. Um, yeah. So what what is it that I've, I've heard you say this before? Is it liars make bad martyrs? Yeah, liars make poor that, martyrs. I, I got that liars from make poor um, the Handbook of Christian Apologetics by uh, Peter Kraft and Ronald Toselli. Um, they had mm. that in there. I read that decades ago and I thought, hey, that that's that's a pretty good slogan. Um, <laughs> yeah. Why? Why does um, Paul mention specifically by name James in the list of people in First Corinthians chapter 15? So he says Cephas or Peter, uh, the 12, 500 eyewitnesses, many of whom are still alive to this day at the time of the writing. Then he appeared to James. Like why? What's significant about mentioning James specifically by name there? It's a difficult one. We we really don't know. It could be because okay. at that point, James was leader in the Jerusalem church. Um, and uh, um, let's see, yeah, he was probably the leader of the Jerusalem church when, when Paul wrote that. Um, plus, he would, have been, he would have been a major figure because people knew him as the brother of Jesus. Um, I do think that Paul is listing these names in chronological order. Um, uh, mm. He does a then, 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 and then finally, you know, so it seems like it's uh, chronological to me. He appeared to Peter, then to the 12, um, even in, and notice the women aren't in there because uh, mm -hmm. Paul in first Corinthians 15, he goes on in verses 11 and 14 to refer to this as kerygma, which referred to the official public proclamation. And so mm. given what you said a moment ago about the women you know, it would have been kind of embarrassing because, you know, a woman's testimony was, uh, it, it wasn't valued much in mm -hmm. the first century. So if you're going to invent a story that is uh, very difficult to believe, you know, a guy coming back from the dead who had been executed by crucifixion, um, if you're going to make up something like that, you know, you're, you're going to try to have some credible witnesses in it not something that people are going to go, oh, come on, are you kidding? Women? Right. Um, yeah. Know, so um, so it, it's omitted from the kerygma in 1 Corinthians 15. But, I, you know, it's talking about the Peter. Luke, seem, in Luke's version, Peter seems to be um, the first uh, disciple to whom Jesus appeared, male disciple. Right. And then right. to the twelve. And then to 500, then to James, then to all the apostles. And all the apostles, there's more than 12. Um, we don't know anything about that appearance or the appearance of the 500, other than, you know, it's in the earliest literature. It's in the earliest account. And then Paul says, finally, last of all, he appeared to him. So, yeah.
Mm. Yeah, no, it's very good. Uh, we're running short on time, but are, are you? What would you say is the strongest argument, or do you think there is a strong argument against uh, the resurrection? Or if you don't think there's a strong argument, what would you say is kind of maybe something that comes up a lot that tends to be pretty common? Um, I would say the strongest answer would be something like what Geza Vermesh offered in his small book on the resurrection. He was a Jewish scholar who did not believe Jesus rose from the dead. And he said, I don't know. I just don't know what happened. I, he says, I don't think it was a hallucination. I don't think they were lying. I don't think Jesus rose from the dead. I just don't know what happened. Um, mm. That seems to me that if you're going to be a skeptic, that's the, the, the fairest objection. I don't think it's a good okay. one because it really doesn't deal with the evidence. And I do think that there is enough evidence that calls for a verdict on the matter. Um, I think you can come to a, a verdict on the matter. But, you know, if you're not going to, then I'd say that's probably the best one. Yeah. Well, and uh, what would you say um, for somebody like like that wants to find out more? I know you mentioned your website, um, but as far as your books go, what would you say is the the one that you would point somebody to that really just wants to get a little bit more of a better understanding, a deeper understanding and be able to share their faith a little bit more competently uh, or particularly share a little bit more confidently about why they believe that Jesus rose from the dead? I'd say for for most followers of Jesus, the book that Gary Habermas and I co-authored, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, is going to be sufficient. If a person is kind of an academic nerd and they really want to get deeply into this, then my book, The Resurrection of Jesus, A New Historiographical Approach, would be more appropriate for them. It's going to answer a whole lot more of their questions and get really in-depth with the, the topic. Um, if they're talking to a Muslim or, and, and uh, either want to give the Muslim something, uh, if the Muslim is willing to read, uh, to read it, um, or they just want to learn themselves, then I wrote a, a, a short book uh, back in 2006, Paul Meets Muhammad. And it's a fictional mm. debate between the Apostle Paul and the Prophet Muhammad. Or they can Very just cool. go on and just watch any of my debates on our YouTube channel. And hear both yeah. Sides. Yeah. And again, those are great. Those are great. I highly recommend checking out those debates. Uh, it's really, 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 really cool. Really, really, really in-depth information comes out. And again, I think that it's really nice when you get to hear kind of both sides and then in real time responding to those questions on both sides, because, you know, you'll say things and then the person that you're debating will come back and they'll be like, uh, okay. And then specifically address some of the things that you said, which then gives you a chance to kind of rebut their rebuttal and, and all of that. And it's a, it's a really, I think, powerful way to learn about uh, this subject. So um, Mike, thank you so much for coming on today. I appreciate your time and, uh, and for all that you shared today, Are there anything just maybe final uh, concluding thought that you would give to again anybody out there that's just uh, either wanting to go a little bit deeper on spe specifically the uh, subject of the resurrection of Jesus yeah well I refer people to the website risenjesus.com to our YouTube channel youtube.com forward slash Mike Lacona official also if you really want to get into it uh, and you want to go further with your education on it and earn a degree I teach at Houston Baptist University, and in our School of Christian Thought, we do have a graduate level program, and we also have certificates a person can uh, earn. Um, graduate program in uh, Master of Arts in Christian Apologetics, and uh, they can do it entirely online or on campus at our Houston campus. Um, I think it's just the finest uh, master of this degree in Christian Apologetics in the world, and we just have first-class faculty and again, they can do that online or they can do it in person or they can do a hybrid of it. It's a great program. Awesome. Awesome. All right. And I'll leave links to, to those things in the show notes as well for anybody listening on the podcast platforms. I uh, appreciate you guys for taking the time to check out this conversation. I hope that it blessed you, challenged you or made you think. And uh, yeah, hope you'll come back for a future episode. If you enjoy the content, if you consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, I'd really, really appreciate it. Um, thank you guys. And uh, again, Dr. Mike, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure, Duke. Bless you, brother.